Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest, John Darlington. John is an archaeologist and the executive director of World Monuments Fund Britain. His professional life is devoted to conserving historic buildings and ancient monuments in the UK and throughout the rest of the world. He's trained archaeologists in Iraq, helped set up a stonemasonry school for Syrian refugees on the Jordanian border, and has contributed to the restoration of Bennerley Viaduct in Nottinghamshire and Mosley Road Baths in Birmingham, among other sites and structures. He's the author of Fake Heritage, Why We Rebuild Monuments, which was published by Yale University Press in 2020. And his new book, Just Out, is Amongst the Ruins, Why Civilizations Collapse and Communities Disappear. John, welcome and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Jessica. Delighted to be here. I'd like to ask you first about the relationship between these two books, Fake Heritage and Amongst the Ruins. Fake Heritage is about the human impulse and endeavor to create counterfeit versions of historical buildings and faux archaeological sites and other false artifacts. Sometimes you say with the goal of deceiving people and sometimes as an act of actually respectful homage. And Amongst the Ruins, the new book, explores the historical circumstances around the loss of communities and civilizations and often the things that they built. So I'm, I wonder if the idea occurred to you a long time ago from the outset to write these two as a kind of pairing, which they do seem to be, or if not, what was the inspiration to write Amongst the Ruins after Fake Heritage? Uh, I, it wasn't a deliberate pairing, that's for sure. I, I think in, in terms of what what makes me get out of bed in the morning, I've kind of always been an archaeologist. Uh, I was born in, in Benghazi in Libya, and my mother claims to have wheeled me around uh, in a pram around the ruins of Leptis Magna. So ruins have been a sort of constant for my life uh, from, from that moment in time, albeit that's probably a, a fake moment because I couldn't possibly remember it. Uh, back since we left Libya at the age of about six months. So it's it's a memory from a photograph. But the, the reality is that, that ruins have been this constant in my life, uh, something which I've been fascinated by. Uh, if you know, When people are asked as a child, what would be your superpower? Uh, my superpower wasn't invisibility or being able to fly or having super bendable arms or whatever it might be. My superpower was actually to travel back in time. That's the thing which which fascinated me. So so ruins have been this constant theme. And I guess Fake Heritage, as you picked out, is a book which is uh, about, you know, about why, why reconstruct ruins, why create a, a fake medieval castle in the 18th century, why, why make Stonehenge countless, countless times uh, sometimes in stone, sometimes in, in in straw bales. Why would you do that? So this idea of ruination and then people's reconstruction of the past through ruins uh, sits at the heart of fake heritage. And I guess this book is a continuation of, of that theme of ruins because ruins sit very much at the heart of this one. Uh, and on this occasion, I'm, I'm looking back at these past civilizations 
and and collapsed societies uh, through the lens of the, of the material remains which they leave behind, the ruins, the earth, earthworks, the lumps and bumps in the fields and the artefacts that they leave behind. And really what I'm trying to do is pose the question of, of how and why did we reach the state of the ruin? How did these places, these these communities disappear and, and, and fall? What happened? Uh, and that's that's actually a very... It's, it's not just a backwards-looking thing, fascinated though I am in, in what's happened in the past. This is very much a case of, well, if they went to ruination back, back then and the same themes which underpin that ruination exist today, surely there must be lessons that we can learn from their experiences which apply not only to the present but the future. So, so ruins are very much the motif which runs through uh, kind of uh, those two books and indeed what I do. Mm. So let's talk about the structure of Amongst the Ruins, which is organized into five thematic sections that answer your why question. Those are climate change, natural hazards, human disaster, war, and economy um, are you know did given your lifelong fascination with ruins did, did those categories have those always been sort of how how you look at this kind of thing or as you started to decide which stories to include in the book did they divide themselves kind of naturally into the thematic groupings I would say I would say the latter so that that knowledge and experience and enjoyment of these countless places. Uh, then got me looking as into what why did they why did they reach the ruin and and then that got me thinking about well what are the common themes which you could then group uh, these sites and places and peoples together and on the way lots of places which I love fell out of the the book and lots of places which I hadn't heard of before fell into the book so it was it was very much a a process uh, you know, that kind of process I, I guess one of the main learnings from the book however and in its drafting and creation was that actually whilst I might identify those five themes the reality is that that collapse and and loss actually uh, is is rarely singular so you rarely get just one sole reason why a civilization collapses uh, it's it's it tends to be always around the, an amalgamation of, of many of these themes. So I, I use the themes just to pick out the beginning of a story or a particular highlight. The, the only difference in there is perhaps with natural hazards where you get one calamitous moment in time, such as an earthquake or a, a, a volcanic eruption, which truly devastates a community. But that, that they, they, they tend to be the, the rarity amongst the, the stories in this book. Yeah, although you might argue that, you know, especially in contemporary days, the idea of a natural hazard being exacerbated by climate change sort of blurs that boundary too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So there are some uh, 17 stories, I think, and, and sites from around the world and throughout history in the book, and they're divided into more or less equal numbers among the categories. So maybe as uh, a, another way to explain the categories, would you mind introducing us very briefly to some of them, maybe an example from each of the thematic sections in the book? Sure. So, so take take climate change, which is very much a, 
uh, top of our minds today as it should be. But of course, uh, you know, the global climate has been changing ever since uh, ever since the, the planet was formed. It's only in the last 150 years that uh, human uh, actions have, have greatly exacerbated it. So, so climate change is a, is a major theme. And one of the, the stories I tell is about the the Garamantes, who are uh, an empire which is established in the, the southern Sahara. Uh, in well, they they reach their heyday between two hundred and five hundred common era, uh, and it's really a story about uh, this landscape in which they 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 inhabit this this quarter of uh, quarter of a million square kilometers. Uh, and it's how this this empire emerges from actually a drying landscape, and then slowly slowly disappears because that drying trend, a natural drying trend, uh, means that the water that they're searching for, which sustains all life for this empire, uh, gradually becomes out of reach, and and things fragment and disappear. So the Garamantes is is one story, and it's it's an interesting one for me because it's it's uh, an empire which few people have heard of. So it's a great, a great way in which to kind of introduce uh, new cultural heritage, well, both to myself, but also to hopefully to a wider readership. Uh, and it, it was an extraordinary empire, I'd say, which, which, which slowly disappeared, but had great technology, which, which allowed it to survive in the first place. It's also, uh, you know, sort of uh, playing against type a little bit to have a story from such a long time ago be in the climate change chapter. I appreciated that. Yes, and, and I mean it is fascinating because say the the, the drying trend, uh, which the Garamantes kind of rise through, it started something like uh, three thousand years ago. Well, in fact, more than three thousand years ago. So you have this this drying climate, and essentially they're reaching down into the earth to 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 collect water, which sustains all life. But as the climate continues to dry, that water disappears, and the technologies which they're using, which are these uh, they're called fagaras, which are sort of underground uh, 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 pipeways, drains, which which cut into the the underlying aquifer. Uh, they take more and more slave power to actually maintain them, and gradually uh, the combination of trying to reach too far, diminishing slave uh, resources, mean that the, the the society disappears. My second theme is around natural hazards. And the story that I, I pick out from that one is the the, the calamitous earthquake uh, at Port Royal, which took place in 1692. So here we have one of the, the the busiest ports in the whole of the Caribbean in the 17th century, uh, an absolutely extraordinary settlement, one which is kind of has a long history of, of buccaneers and pirates as well as. Uh, trade of tax evasion, so it's this incredible mixture of extreme wealth, extreme debauchery. It's just uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and it's actually a very modern society for its time because it's they have uh, because of its wealth that the, the town has uh, all the kind of accoutrements and appearance of of essentially central London or central Amsterdam. It's It's got high buildings made out of brick. It's got uh, uh, pubs and inns and gaming houses. And you know, it, it is just this this great buzzing capital of Jamaica and of the, the British in the Caribbean. 
And then the earthquake hits. And the earthquake, essentially, because of the, the location of Port Royal, which is sits on the very end of a, a, a spit of land uh, uh, to the south of what is now uh, uh, the, coming, the, the current capital of Jamaica, because, because it sits in this precarious position, the earthquake literally means that, that, that half the town disappears, so that the town is founded on the end of this spit of land. And the, the 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 surrounding area turns to quicksand, and buildings literally drop into the quicksand and are swallowed up. And they, they still exist, or their archaeological remains still exist in the sea uh, uh, today. Uh, so it's a story about that that moment of collapse. This this incredibly modern, uh, uh, buzzing, vibrant place. Uh, disappearing almost in the blink of an eye, and it never really recovered from after that earthquake. So that that, that this this is kind of my my motif for natural hazards. There's a wonderful moment in that story where there was a, a timepiece found in the water, that, so they know exactly what time the earthquake hit because the watch stopped at that moment, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, archaeologists we're, we're used to dealing with very vague dates uh, of sometimes you know decades or, or or centuries even in terms of typologies of pottery or flints or whatever. So to have to have an actual pocket watch, which clearly you know, the moment the earthquake hit, that's that's when it stopped, is is an extraordinary uh, survival uh, and very rare. I should hasten to add. Uh, then, then I, I move on to the war. Again, all of these themes are, are, have a contemporary uh, relevance as well, given the climate that we're living in. So, so war and war's contribution towards the collapse of civilizations. And the the story I, I tell here is about the, the great neo Assyrian capital Nimrud. So we're in we're in the northern part of modern day Iraq. Uh, we are in amongst the Neo-Assyrian Empire, talking roughly around sort of 850 BCE, so so that that time. And Nimrud is chosen uh, as the capital uh, of the the new emperor of the time, and he creates uh, this this enormous city. It it was already a city, but he, he, he enhances it in every single way, building new palaces, uh, new barrack blocks, new 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 walls. His son adds a massive great ziggurat. So you've got this this burgeoning symbol of the the emperor, the emperors, uh, and their authority. And I guess at the heart of this story is that uh, two hundred years later or so, the, the the Babylonians and Medes attack. Nimrud and the other the other uh, cities of the the Neo Assyrian Empire, and in attacking it and defeating the Neo Assyrians, they they essentially they they redact the, the the previous regime. They 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 wipe it literally from the face of the earth. They they take the the the, the tablets and the relief carvings in the palaces and they break them up. They they take the pictures of emperors and they scrape uh, marks through their eyes to blind them these are the, the relief carvings they, they literally uh, strike across their eyes to blind them and they they cut their hands into the from again in the reliefs they cut their hands off they graffiti put graffiti 
of, of new genies, uh, essentially uh, protective gods, uh, staring right at the old emperors. So it's a, it's an extraordinary uh, piece of uh, an extraordinary story about how when a new power is in power, it it essentially wishes to to delete the previous authority in every way, shape, and form. And the fascinating thing for me about this story is, you know, this we're talking here around 612 BCE when the, the Babylonians defeat the Neo-Assyrians. But of course, back in 2014, 15, 16, 17, we have uh, the ISIS who hit the, exactly the same territory and do exactly the same thing. They, they literally blow up the great ziggurat at Nimrud in, a, in an attempt to to delete what they see as a, as a heresy. Mm. Doomed to repeat itself. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's one of the, the, the themes of the book is, mm-hmm. is history does repeat itself. Uh, then, then we move to uh, economic collapse. Uh, and the economy often plays a, a, a fundamental role in the, in the, in the destruction of civilizations. Uh, for this one, I, I pick a, a much smaller scale story. So rather than the, the, you know, the disappearance of the Sumerians in the, the south of Iraq, uh, I actually pick up a single building and use that as the motif for what economic collapse can mean. And the building that I use is called Bodazer Hall. It's in, in Staffordshire in the English Midlands. And it's a... Uh, it's uh, kind of originally a, a medieval monastery turns into a hunting lodge, uh, and then at the dissolution of the monasteries, Henry VIII gives it to someone called uh, William Paget, who he then makes Baron Paget, and Baron Paget uh, alters and amends the old monastic buildings and you know, creates this new Elizabethan palace. And inevitably, you go through time and you come to the, the, the Georgian period of the 1770s and the inheritors of Paget's estates, again, revamp this, this uh, Jacobean, uh, uh, Elizabethan house, I should say. They revamp it and put their own stamp on it. And you've got landscapes designed by you know, disciples of, of Capability Brown. And then uh, the great Humphrey Repton comes along and does designs for for the Paget. So you have this almost traditional, typical story of, of change and and replacement, which you find in so many European uh, um, houses of the nobility. Uh, but the story really comes to life in terms of what, the one that I'm trying to tell in the 20th century, because the 20th century is uh, a period when we, we saw this, this huge loss of uh, country houses in uh, country mansions in in the United Kingdom. I think something like 1,200 disappeared since 1900 in England alone. So you see this, this amazing loss of these buildings, uh, which are destroyed. Uh, some of them are destroyed, some are set on fire, some broken up for reuse and uh, recycling. Uh, and that's what happened to Baudelaire. It's because of the the economic climate during the 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 twentieth century, uh, most uh, kind of pro, well, most importantly, the response to how do you pay for the the great wars of that century? It means the burden of taxation falls particularly heavily on the aristocracy, 
uh, at one stage the death duties for uh, for the for, for people uh, would be in the region of uh, 75% for any properties over 2 million so you know that's a huge amount that you have to pay in tax uh, once the, the the lord of the manor effectively dies so so it's a small story but essentially it tells of a much bigger story of, of the, the loss of the country house in britain during the 20th century but there are there are good things which come out of it as well well i'm glad that you have reserved human disaster for the last section to discuss because i'd actually like to ask you to take a slightly deeper dive on one of the stories, if you'll uh, indulge us, and that is the story of Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, um, which, you know, I speak personally, it's captured the imagination of so many people. You, you write in the book, there are few more popular places in the Petri dish under the microscope of collapsology than Rapa Nui. <laughs> it's, you know, and it's often characterized as a kind of mystery, you know, something about its remoteness and the extraordinary visual effect of these abandoned monolithic sculptures on an island in the middle of the ocean. It does seem kind of otherworldly. And there are those who have proposed the involvement of aliens. Uh, but I think we can discount that theory straight off, and uh, I'll ask you to tell the fascinating and actually true story of the people who lived on Rapa Nui and the islands near abandonment. Yes, uh, uh, this is it is fascinating because actually the reality is is far more tragic and far more interesting than, as you say, the theories about aliens moving the the great Maui heads, uh, which everyone associates with Rapa Nui. So. so I mean, the starting point is it has to be that this is an incredibly remote place. We're, we're looking at a uh, an island which is three thousand seven hundred uh, kilometers away from Chile, uh, and it's the nearest neighbour is something like two thousand kilometers away at Pitcairn. So it really is truly, truly remote. Uh, and we find that the, the island is, is first settled by Polynesian settlers who come from Southeast Asia and they sort of island hop uh, across the, the, the Pacific. And it's first settled around 800 to 1000 CE, common era. Uh, and these, these Polynesian, the, the, the Rapa Nui people as they became, create this most extraordinary uh, uh, a cultural landscape, which is the thing that everyone recognises. So, you know, those those Maya heads, which of which there are about nine hundred across the whole island, uh, and they they appear from about eleven hundred onwards. Uh, and so, so we we have this image of of Rapa Nui, uh, which I say is encapsulated in those Maya heads. Though, and interestingly, those those heads, there are nine hundred of them. Uh, half of them, uh, half of that 900, are actually in uh, uh, the quarry in which they're made. So a lot of people don't know that. They, they associate them with the, the, the lines of them sitting uh, on their ahus, the, the platforms on the beaches looking inland. But actually half of these these great heads are in the quarry in which they're made. And some some are clearly failures. So they, they've been dug out of the volcanic tuff and... Uh, someone's found the fault, which means they can't be used. So they're just left there, uh, almost sort of in coffins in which uh, they've dug into the side of the, or dug out of the side of the hill. Uh, so, so you've got this 
great collection of, of these monuments, uh, which correspond as well, as I said before, with these Ahu platforms which dotted around the island uh, and a ceremonial village called uh, Arango. Uh, so this, this, this amazing cultural landscape. And the question uh, often arises, you know, how, how, do the, how are these things constructed? And actually the answers are fairly simple and I won't go into that right now. Uh, but the, the, the perhaps more interesting question as far as we're concerned is, is what's happened to the Rapa Nui? Because there are some estimates that you know, originally there were up to sort of 17,500 Rapa Nui on the island. And yet we know that by 1876, there's just 111. That, that is a catastrophic collapse. That's a catastrophic disappearance of peoples. And so the story then actually goes down two different lines because there are two main theories about why, what happened to the Rapa Nui. Uh, one theory uh, is that essentially uh, they, they committed ecocide. So they arrive on the island and they essentially cut down the palm trees, which which cover the landscape. And in cutting down the palm trees, they which they use to to you know for their boats, they're very proficient deep sea fishers, uh, and they use to, to help construct the the Maui heads. But by c- cutting them down, they effectively uh, 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 mean that the soil is exposed. Once the soil is exposed, it washes and leaches away, and the, the, the actual the productivity of the soil disappears, and therefore the production of food or the ability to produce food also diminishes. So you've got this amazing pressure put on Rapa Nuan society uh, because they've cut down the trees. The ability to do deep sea, deep sea fishing is also diminished, and their ability to leave the islands is also diminished. So the theory goes. Pressure applies to these communities. War begins, and uh, uh, you know, there's there's suggestions of cannibalism. So this whole thing, the whole of society collapses. So that by the time the the first Europeans come across the island, which is uh, uh, 1722 on Easter Day, of course, the, hence they're known or have been known as Easter Island. Uh, the population has, has gone from about 17,500 to around 3,000 people. So that, that's one theory, the sort of eco-side theory. It's not the theory I, theory I buy into because I don't think there's any particular evidence to suggest that there was such a massive population in the first place. There's definitely pressure put on the environment uh, through you know, slowly diminishing tree cover but it's, it's not the catastrophic pressure which, which leads necessarily to this ecocide. Uh, and instead, the, the second theory, which is the one that I do, do buy into, is that the moment you get European uh, discovery of Rapa Nui, uh, a number of things happen. So, so Rapa Nui discovered uh, by Europeans by uh, a Dutch admiral, uh, Roger Verin, on Easter Day, 1722, and then there's a succession of other travellers who come across it. Uh, the Spanish claim it as theirs in 1770. Uh, Captain Cook uh, arrives on the island in 1774. And perhaps more, more sinisterly, we get the first evidence of slavers uh, arriving in 1805. 
And with this introduction of sort of European influence, we also get the introduction of European diseases, smallpox and uh, measles and tubercul- tuberculosis. So, you know, so we, we see that impacting upon a population who have no previous exposure to, to these kinds of diseases. So it hits them hard. And the slaving, it becomes a, you know, a really terrible and tragic moment in, in the history of Rapa Nui. Uh, it's, the worst moment is 1862, when essentially the Peruvian government, so I jump over, over to, to South America, the Peruvian government is looking for solutions to, to find labour for the, the great guano, guano boom uh, of, kind of fertilizer boom in in Peru, and they essentially approve uh, people to actually bring and to enslave uh, or make indentured servants uh, of people from Polynesia, the Polynesian islands. So slavers literally travel from Peru to the to the Polynesian islands, including Rapa Nui, and forcibly take. Uh, that the large proportions of the population away back to Peru to, to put them into slavery or indentured labor. Uh, the, the story gets worse and worse. I mean, it, it is truly tragic because whilst the approval of slavery in uh, uh, 1862 is soon reversed uh, in 1863-64, the, the result is that the, the, the those uh, Rapanuians and Polynesians who are still in Peru are repatriated, and bear in mind that many of them have died from disease. Disease then travels back to Rapa Nui and, and further devastates the population. So it's this kind of waves and successions of, of terrible tragedy which culminates in the uh, sort of later uh, uh, 19th century when actually the, the surviving Rapa Nui, their lands are purchased, they're forcibly evicted from their lands to make way for 700,000 sheep because it becomes a, a large ranching, uh, 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 it becomes a large ranch. And the surviving Rapa Nui, this 111 people that I mentioned in 1876, are restricted to uh, almost a detention centre in one corner, one small corner of the island. So terrible tragedy, uh, which people don't really know about. So people just focus on the Maui heads, amazing right. that they are. Right. But actually, there's this story about the, the people who made them right. and the people who, who actually survive there today. It is unbelievably tragic. And, it, and what, uh, among the Rapa Nuans who were taken to Peru were their leaders. Is that? Yes, yes. The, the, the king is taken, his yeah. priests, his son. And, and they actually die uh, either on the way out or back from Peru. So when you know, when you're trying to re-establish uh, Rapa Nuin society, you, you haven't got those fixed points which you're used to. You haven't got the the kingship model because the king doesn't survive anymore. So again, it's more pressure, which causes this this disintegration uh, of of Rapa Nuin society. Yeah. Throughout the book, and particularly at its conclusion, you remind the reader that events like the ones you write about, although not necessarily exactly the ones you write about, are are not confined to history. From, you know, the 
worsening effects of climate change to ongoing conflict in different parts of the world to, you know, the catastrophic earthquake in Turkey and Syria just last month, we continue to experience the kinds of disasters that you talk about in Amongst the Ruins. Um, and you mentioned lessons at the beginning. What what kinds of lessons do you hope the readers of your book come away with in, in the context of not only how we think about our heritage, but how we respond to contemporary threats to communities and places? Yes, I, I think that, I mean, if you would search lessons from the past, past uh, you know, in your search engine, you literally come up with hundreds and hundreds of quotes from many, many people, ranging from Byron through to Mark Twain, about the lessons from the past. Uh, but then when you actually think, what, what are those lessons? Then it, then it becomes slightly more fuzzy-edged because there's not many people aren't expressing, well, what did we learn from that? And I, I guess in a, in a very personal way, I pick out a couple of practical lessons that we should be learning from this, this library of, of humankind because that's essentially what we're looking at. This, and many things have happened before, so what, what, how might we learn from that? And I guess some, some of it is, is very simple, and that is... If, if you take traditional architecture, for example, that that's been constructed, that's been uh, that's born of of dealing with climatic extremes. So, if you go to the Middle East or North Africa areas, you will find just simple things such as mashrabia windows, which are these sort of balconies which extend outwards into. Uh, into the street, very elaborate, beautifully decorated balconies with wooden screens which are perforated with various different geometric shapes, normally bigger holes at the top, smaller ones at the bottom. And that, that, that simple thing is, is a way of not only having privacy for those who are inside the house looking out of it, but also of helping to cool the building. So the air passes through the Mashrabia window, uh, which are normally on the, the the shady side of the street, so they're drawing cool air into the building. The air is circulating because the the perforations are bigger at the top and smaller at the bottom, so it's already being agitated. It passes over uh, 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 vessels filled with water, so it's cooling, and it it passes through the house. So here's a lesson from the past, which you don't need to copy the Mashrabia window because there can be modern interpretations of it, but we should be heeding those kinds of, of small devices which have allowed people to live in extremely hot and arid climates for thousands of years. Uh, another example, again, a simple one, uh, talking of earthquakes, and as you say, the, you know, the tragic events in, uh, in southern Turkey and northern Syria, is that, you know, again, if you took some traditional designs, such as the, if you look at uh, uh, pagodas in Japan, and Japan is one of the most uh, earthquake-prone countries in the world, you look at the pagoda, traditional pagoda designs, and they're designed around a, 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 a kind of single vertical pole called the Shinbashira pole. And the whole building, uh, the whole structure hinges off this pole, but it's flexible to it. So when there are earthquakes, the building, the, the building, the pagoda flexes, it doesn't fall over. Uh, so again, these, it's these simple, simple lessons from architectural history, which might be, might be useful today. And, and then it, it ranges from those simple lessons to actually much, much bigger ones, some of which 
are along the lines of, well, actually, you know, the world has changed since the world was formed. It's that, that, that constant, constant thing which I, I started out by uh, mentioning. So in a, in a changing world, we, we have to recognise that nothing will ever stay the same. And so part of the philosophy which I work to as an archaeologist, which is counter to what many people think archaeologists are about, they tend to think that we, we're interested in fossilising things, in preserving things in, in aspic, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. We recognise that change is inevitable. It's always going to take place. Therefore, a lot of what we do is based around conservation, and conservation is simply around the careful management of change. So perhaps if we adopted more of that approach, that would also help us in the present and in the future. Uh, the book gives you so much to think about, and uh, and I thank you, John, for introducing us to some of those things today and for uh, talking to us about the book and particularly for enlightening us about Rapa Nui. You're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. John Darlington's new book is Amongst the Ruins, Why Civilizations Collapse and Communities Disappear, and it's available now at a bookstore near you. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about this and all of our books.